Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. Can the importance of beer in the evolution of Canadian history be overstated, I ask? We love beer. Today, Canadian adults drink an average of just over 71 litres of beer a year. It varies from province to province, of course. Newfoundlanders are the champion drinkers with just over 87 litres on average per person, followed by Quebec and Islanders. Ontario adults drink the least, just over 69 litres a year on average. But beer consumption has been declining steadily in Canada worldwide. Today, the champion beer drinkers per capita remain the Czechs. Beer brands often take on a local, regional, or national reputation. Sometimes it's more than just about the suds. Just as importantly, beer production is now a global business. So the question is this. How have Canadian brewers fared as the industry has grown from local to global and then back to local? Matthew Bellamy is my guest today, and he has looked at all these questions while researching one very important Canadian beer company. He's an associate professor of history at Carleton University, and his book is Brewed in the North, A History of Labatt's. It's published by McGill-Queens University Press. Matthew Bellamy, welcome to the Champlain Society podcast. Hi, Patrice. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You're the witness to yesterday for this episode. Tell me what happened in Philadelphia in 1876. Oh, that was a, um, a World's Fair that took place. It was called the Centennial Expo- uh, Exposition. And like many World Fairs, of course, it was designed to promote innovation and celebrate innovation and technological progress. And so you had various manufacturers around the world gathering this time in Philadelphia to try and bring attention to their goods. And so you had you know, various innovations like the typewriter that were introduced to the American public at that time and the world public. Also, uh, things like soft drinks that had started to appear on the North American scene. But brewers had gone down there. We have to remember that this is a time before social media, certainly a time before radio and TV. How do you get your product noticed? <laughs> That's the question, right? Yes. And this is a time of print advertisements and the beginning of brand marketing. And so what brewers wanted to do was go down there, put their product up against the competition, hopefully come away with a gold medal like Labatt did, and then exploit this for all that it was worth. Now, Labatt's only made one beer in those days, right? It, it actually made a few, Patrice, okay. um, but the big one was... The IPA, India Pale Ale. Exactly. Which is, which is what? For those, of, for, for those listeners who don't really drink a lot of beer, what is an IPA? An IPA is a, a hoppy beer, so they're adding a lot of hops, and that uh, helps. The hops really add a, a, are a bittering agent at one level. It's also a preservative. And so the more hops you have, the longer the beer's going to last. And this is a time when you're on ships, you don't have refrigeration. And so it really started off as a British product, and they were shipping it to the military over in India, hence its name. But it catches on because in warmer climates, you don't want the stouts and the porters. They're great for foggy, raining London, <laughs> you know, something warm. Hey, wait, I love, really I love stouts, okay? We'll, talk, we'll, come, we'll come to that later. We'll come to that later. So do I. <laughs> so they're making this IPA. Uh, he wins gold medal, beating out the likes of Bass and Paps, and he exploits that for all it's worth. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot here. Labatt's 50 has always had these two medallions, but for the life of me, I've never been able to decipher what they stand for. Might those be the Philadelphia medals? Yeah. Uh, you know, you and I are in <laughs> the same boat. I have to admit my <laughs> ignorance on this one because you're right. These labels are very, um, 
well, they're small. They're uh, small. And <laughs> often when you're drinking, you're not looking too close at the label of a beer bottle. Um, well, it but depends. Yes, if you had would... many drinks, that's all you're looking for. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> now, it also won an award at the Paris Exhibition in 1885. So it traveled. It did travel. You're absolutely right. And so this was something that they continually played up after the fact, even once the World Fairs had really lost their luster. You know, there were other ways of getting your message out. They continued to sh put the, the medals from the late 1800s on their beers, like 50, which comes out in 1950 to celebrate the anniversary of Hugh and um, John Labatt joining the firm back in 1900. And so just to kind of symbolize quality. Let's go back to the beginning then. Uh, the beginning of this firm in London, Ontario. And your, your book talks about one character in particular, the founder, John Kinder Labatt. Who was this man? Yeah, John Kinder Labatt was born in Mount Melnick, Ireland, which is um, about an hour and a half by car uh, to the southwest of uh, Dublin. And Mount Melnick was just caught up in the Industrial Revolution at the time. So he grows up there and he's witnessing this technological progress. He's from poor Huguenot stock, Patrice, and so, uh, but he's got ambitions. And what does he do at the age of 27 in 1830? He shoots off to London, which is the largest metropolis on the face of the globe. He tries to make his mark there and he gets a job as a clerk in Bankside. And Bankside, if your listeners uh, know London, and I'm sure many of them do, you know, Bankside is where the Tate Modern is now and also the Globe Theater. It used to be the place where the rich used to go to debauch, right, uh, during the 60s. 1600s, you know, to tipple, to go into the brothels, to watch the plays of William Shakespeare, and then they would travel back to the opposite side of the Thames. By the time that Labatt gets there, it's industrializing. It's caught up in the Industrial Revolution. So there's factories, glassmakers, hatmakers, and breweries. And so he's witnessing these monuments to high technology, you know, churning out the beer there. So he's, he's kind of caught by that. That being said, uh, he can't move up in London because of his Irish background. And so he's getting frustrated. While his professional life is really not going very well, his personal life takes off and he manages to meet a girl and um, marry this girl, Eliza Kell, uh, who ha would have had no time for him except for the fact that her dad gets involved in a speculative investment and as a result of that doesn't have the money and looks like he might go off to debtor's prison. John Labatt, who's taken with this woman who's 12 years his junior, you know, says to uh, Mr. Kell, I'll take care of her. Just you know, allow me to marry your daughter. Not only will I take care of her, but your wife as well. Having made that arrangement, they're off. And they, you know, probably know, Patrice, that pamphlets are circulating in London at this time about uh, the yes. upper Canadian frontier. And so he takes a gamble and decides to come to present day Upper Canada, landing in York and making his stake to clan, uh, land just outside of London, Ontario. For the next, for the next 15 years, Patrice, he's a farmer. That's what he does. And he does it relatively well. But when he hits the age of 45, and so it's 1847, he kind of has what we might call a midlife crisis in the sense that he's not satisfied with what he's doing. And even though he's a really good farmer, he just thinks farming is below his status, what he wants to be. He's always imagined the manufacturers of Great Britain, right, as being like at the top of the social and economic runs. And that's where he wants to be. So he sells off his farm and he goes back to England and he's looking for a business. But what's fascinating is that you see these letters, if, if any of your li listeners get the chance 
go down to the University of Western Ontario and pour over the Labatt. Oh, come on. We'll get to that in a second, Matthew. <laughs> what what, I, what yeah. I'm curious, though, is that the, the, the origin of the Labatt's is an affair of the heart. Yes. John Kinder Labatt is, is a late starter. It's, we're not talking about a 20-year-old here. You're talking about a 45-year-old. Yes. He suddenly discovers that he wants to be a brewmaster? Right. Yes. And really, he, he would have been a brewmaster, but he could have been a candle maker. He could have been so many other things. He, you know, when he's over in London, he's not looking to get into the brewing business. He's thinking, I'll get into any manufacturing enterprise. Uh -huh. And he's writing back to his wife saying, you know what, basically showing his insecurities. I've been too long in the backwoods to make my mark in this world, he says, you know, and then she's writing back with news about what's going on in London. And one of those letters, Patrice, she says, oh, your buddy down the road there. He's, he's killing he's it. He's just entered the brewing <laughs> business. And Labatt writes back saying, I should have done that. And she takes matters into her own hand, marches down the road and says, can my husband buy into your business? They have it appraised and he's in. So yes, you're so right. It's late in life and he doesn't know what he's going to do except for leave farming to get into manufacturing. And his wife gave him the idea. Right. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So he launches a brew. We, can we call it a factory? I mean, it's a small craft industry. It's a craft brewery in London, Ontario. London, Ontario is where he has his farm. You say in the book that the water quality is quite good in, in London. And there's also a good crop of wheat available, isn't there? Yes, that's exactly right. So it's blessed by nature. They have all the natural ingredients. For your listeners, uh, beer is fundamentally three things. It's overwhelmingly water, so you have to have a good water supply. Um, and it's very good if you have soft water this time. Soft water, like you have Burden upon Trent, is very good for the IPAs. Um, so water is essential. Um, and Canada is like number four on the list in terms of fresh water supply. Uh, hops, right, which grow best between 35 and 55 degrees latitude. So that's Canada. Bang. And then, of course, barley, barley, which isn't good for making bread, but it's very good for making beer. It, uh, it, it, it's, it makes the difference, doesn't it? So he has some success in London. Your book talks about breaking into the Toronto market. Yes. Yeah. He, and, it, and, and that goes fairly well. Does it not? Yeah, it does. He starts off by expanding outside of London because the military there. And if you look at this, is a kind of interesting thing because you wonder about, well, why do brewers establish themselves where they are? And Labatt, Molson's, Keith, Alexander Keith, you know, these brewers are all setting up by either British naval establishments or uh, near military establishments. Why? Because the military and the Navy are given enough money to have five pints of beer per day. It's their pay pack. It's their ration. An army marches on its stomach and that stomach must include food and beer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, so Labatt's growing out of London. He's moving into Toronto. Yep. Obviously, you know, he wants to grow a business and there are other people who are competing with him. Uh, you mentioned Keith, you mentioned uh, Molson. The Molson family has been in the brewery business for a long time in Montreal. Um, how does he compete? I mean, there's, there, there's already a competition happening between Toronto and Montreal, isn't there? Yeah, very much so. It, it gets magnified, I think, later on. And that's why you have Labatt jumping into sports teams like the Toronto Blue Jays that it does in the 1970s. It really wants to associate itself with Toronto, which in you know so many ways is not only an Ontario city, it's English Canada's capital, right? And so there is that rivalry. And so they want to associate them. Getting back to the point that you're making profoundly, yes, you're absolutely right. There's rivalries there uh, between these two brewers. And you often have Molson's and National Breweries shipping their beer into the Ontario market and Labatt's, O'Keefe's, uh, Dominion Breweries, which are all Ontario-based breweries, shipping their beer into Quebec. You, we know how close this region is. It's interconnected on the railways, So it's an easy if 
fresh move to do. So there is this competition, absolutely. But keep in mind for your readers that you don't have really, you don't have national brewers until after the Second World War. And so these still are regional brewers that are using the railway to go just a bit further in terms of their scope. But is, is Labatt's competitive at that yeah, point? Yeah, it's a great question. What makes it competitive? There's, you know, success in the, in the brewing industry to this day, Patrice, comes down to three things that maybe I'm oversimplifying, but it's making a good uh, product, it's marketing it effectively, and it's getting it into the hands of consumers. And we have to understand that last thing is very difficult because often breweries, right, uh, through lobbying governments, put up tariffs and non-tariffs barriers. So it's difficult to get your beer into a market if you're a foreign brewer. Conversely, you know, there's the Tidehouse system. And so if you want to get your beer under the taps, you know, guess what? The, the brewer, your competitor, owns that house, that pub. And so you can't get your beer in there. So it's very difficult, right? So what did Labatt do? It moved quickly, right? It utilized the railroad before so many others. It was brewing a good product. And it, it was on the, the edge of uh, uh, brand marketing, right? So it was, he was very good, both John Kinderlebat and John Lebat II, at marketing their products. Well, okay, so you've raised the issue of intergenerational transfer. And your book makes the point that uh, Labatt's has been uniquely successful because they were able to transfer from generation to generation very successfully. Um, how did that work out? What, what was the what was the the governing passion behind it? What made it a family company for so long? I think that there's a, a number of things. Um, one of the things, and David Landis points this out, and David Landis is a business historian out of uh, uh, Harvard who wrote uh, Dynasties, uh, which is about family fortunes, the big families you know, that have succeeded. And Landis uh, talks about the fact that often the founding fathers and uh, their successors are philoprogenitive. And that means, in a nutshell, they have a lot of kids. And so if you're having a lot of kids, you can pass over the duds for trees, right? And signal out those people that actually are going to be capable to run a business. No suds for duds, you're just saying. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to get a t-shirt made. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. So John Kinderlebat, it's just like this. He realizes that his first two sons, Robert and Ephraim, aren't that good. And so he singles out his namesake, John Lebat II, who is a natural, right, to take over the firm, passing over the elders too. And then John Lebat II, you know, he was a bit more cursed in on this, Patrice, and he passes away in 1915. This is John Lebat II now. He's... Right you know, has seven girls and two boys. And those two boys are a bit of, you know, they're not as capable as the previous two generations. And so we can see a decline in the activities of the firm just because they weren't as capable. And so it's shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves or the Bundabrooks effect as it's known. The company manages to survive prohibition and Ontario is deep prohibition land. Yeah. Uh, and then we have the depression. How does Labatt's manage all this? I'm so glad you asked that because this is really the turning point. Up until the First World War, when Prohibition hits, Labatt has tried to break into the United States, is unsuccessful, and retrenches in the southwest corner of Ontario. It's reduced to a second-tier brewer. And so you ask yourself, well, how come it becomes one of the big three after the Second World War? It is this period that you've asked about, Patrice. And what, what happens is that, uh, to inform your readers, we get prohibition coming into effect in one place and another during the war. The only province to go dry before that was PEI. It goes dry in 1901 and has prohibition until 1948. Your listeners probably know, but if they don't, there's this division of powers uh, 
it, when it comes to booze in the BNA Act, and the federal government has the power to prohibit the manufacture of intoxicating beverages, the provinces have the power to prohibit its retail sales. Yes. Okay, so when we're talking about prohibition in Canada, we're not talking about prohibiting manufacturing. The brewers can continue to do that. So can the distillers and the vendors. What are we talking about? We are talking about closing down the bars. And you have this happening across Canada during the First World War. So... Ontario goes drive, various other places. Ontario has prohibition from 1916 to 1927. Uh, Nova Scotia has it from 1916 to 1930. Uh, Manitoba has it from 1916 to 1924. Quebec, God bless them, put up with the Noble experiment for eight months and say, we're out, you know. So it depends where you are to know how long it lasts. Here's the bottom line. What does Labatt do? First of all, it gets involved in a mail order business, deciding what we'll do here is ship it out of the province and then ship it back in. Right. It's a shell game. Absolutely. And the prohibitionists say these guys are cheating. They're violating the spirit of the law. So Borden closes that loophole. So what does it do after that? On June 21st, 1921, uh, there's a hastily arranged border directors meeting at Labatt. All the family members are there because, as you pointed out, this is still family owned and controlled. And they decide and I'm quoting the board minutes here. Unless something very unforeseen occurs, we're going to close down the brewery a year hence. There is one outsider there, a guy by the name of Edmund Burke, who is a hard-nosed Irishman who's cut his teeth selling tobacco and whiskey in the United States. He's their general manager, and he says, whoa, 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 <laughs> wait, wait, let's not do anything hasty. How about this? Let me run things. Don't ask any questions. Give me 10% of the profits, and I guarantee you will not only survive prohibition, you will thrive. And what does he do, Bertrand? He turns them into the best bootlegger in Canadian history, right? Buying Colby whiskey down the road from Belleville, which becomes the biggest distillery in the world in 1922. So you'd be thinking, what's going on here? You know, and right. he's using Labatt's beer and this hard liquor, and he's down on the Windsor docks, bought up big boat, and he's shipping it over to the likes of Al Capone and the Purple Gang. Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke. This is a <laughs> name that will live on in Canadian business annals. So the, the, the lesson here, and again, your book details this, is that uh, Labatt's has the management chops necessary to survive hard times and uh, really goes through those difficult years brilliantly. There's a sadness uh, in this story. In 1934, John S. Labatt, which is the, is the grandson, right? Yeah. Of the founder. He's kidnapped. What happened? It's It's a fascinating tale. You know, he's... Uh, just to give you the, the facts of the case, you know, he's leaving his compound. They have a cottage up on um, uh, Lake Huron, and he's driving back uh, through the city and, uh, sorry, back to London because he's running late for a meeting. He takes a gravel road. And as he's driving down this gravel road, he looks in his rearview mirror and this black sedan comes up to him and then passes him by. And so Labatt settles for a second, but then his heart starts to race again as this black sedan comes back at him. The car stops within 20 feet of Labatt's car, and three masked men get out, and they said, stick him up. This is a kidnapping. Did they know it was Labatt? They knew it was Labatt. Okay, they okay. had been watching him, because these guys had been involved in prohibition. Their leader was a man by the name of Three Finger Aid, who had <laughs> lost his finger in a shutout, <laughs> shootout with police down on the Detroit docks during prohibition. And so they, they knew that Labatt was sitting on a mountain of cash from his prohibition days or from the firm's prohibition days. They wanted that cash. And here's the big thing. During the Depression, kidnapping was all over the place. Yes, you make that point in the book, yeah. Yeah. And and so what you wanted to do was find those people who obviously had money at a time when most Canadians didn't. And Labatt didn't hide the fact that he had money. He was often driving around London as 
stately limousine wearing his three-piece suits. And so he looked like a man of money. So they grab him. And ultimately what they do to make a long story short is they hold him for two days. It breaks down. Some of the kidnappers get cold feet, one of them in particular, and just shoots off to the United States. When the whole thing falls apart, Patrice, the two remaining kidnappers, which are up in Bracebridge, which is Cottage Country, and they have Labatt chained to the bed, literally using a dog chain, right? And they have them blindfolded. And they break into the room and they say, listen, we're going to kill you. We're literally going to throw you to the bottom of the lake if you can't salvage this in some way. And Labatt smartly says, listen, just get me back to the Royal York Hotel where he's supposed to meet his brother and I will find you $25,000. And so the kidnappers thinking we have to you know, get out of this mess somehow, decide to drive him down. They drop him to the corner. He walks into the Royal York Hotel. This is John S. Labatt's and says, you know, I'm John S. Labatt. I'm looking for my brother. Show me his room. After that, the legacy of all this is that he becomes a uh, a hermit almost the brewery becomes a fortress because he's always looking over his, his shoulder because he thinks he's going to be hit by these guys um so it's a it is a sad tale as you said but for labat it's actually a good thing because this is a time when we still have restrictions on advertising and what's in the press the whole time <laughs> the kidnapping of john labat he survived and um the his kidnappers were caught yeah, yeah, they were caught, and there was a trial, and that prolongs the press coverage. So they do remarkably well based on all of this. Let's race ahead. Uh, again, this is this is very much uh, a book about an evolving business. I, I certainly felt through in reading your your wonderful book that uh, Labatt's is always pushing the 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 outer edge of the envelope. They they need to break out, break out of London, break out of Toronto, break out of Ontario, break into Quebec, break into the East, break into the West, uh, and then break into the United States, which is always to me, endlessly fascinating because until very recently, it was very clear that the Americans had no idea how to brew beer. Right. <laughs> what, what happened to Labatt's in the United States? Well, they, they, you know, there were a couple of attempts to break into the United States. The first one was under John Labatt II, and you started off asking me about uh, the World's Fair. And having got that medal from the World's Fair, now he gets arrogant and he thinks, well, you know, I, I'm going to get out of Ontario. The mecca of beer drinking is Chicago. Right. And they actually drink at this time. And we're talking about uh, the late 1880s, the early 1890s. And Chicagoans are drinking twice as much as Germans at this time. It's something crazy. I think it's 48 gallons per person per annum, which is a wow, huge amount. That's a lot. It's a lot. And so Labatt realizes, you know what? This is a this is a great opportunity because I can also use Chicago as a hub to break into the United States. He goes down there, however, and he realizes, you know, this is a cutthroat environment. He's up against the shipping brewers, people like Anheuser-Busch, Paps, Miller. They know what they're doing and they have economies of scale, right? They also have, as we talked about before, one of the most important things is brewing, is a, being able to get your product into the hands of the consumers. And the market is tied up, literally tied up, because all the big brewers own the most uh, frequented bars in Chicago. So Labatt can't get his beer behind the bar at all. Finally, to make a bad situation worse, because he's talking about low volumes when he moves into Chicago, he has to hire a really bad salesman, a guy that spent too much. The trick in those days, Patrice, was to go into a bar and entice people to be loyal to your brand by buying them drinks. And this was called spending. And so uh, everybody was doing, but he did a bit too much of it, if you know what I mean. And Labatt actually tells him, I don't want anybody dying on my account. Put a plug in it. You know, he's basically saying you're an alcoholic. 
do not drink anymore. And so for all of these reasons, as well as the tariff and things like that, he blows in and out of the Windy City in about five short years. He goes bankrupt, right? So that's the first time they attempt to break into the United States. The next time comes a bit later in the 1980s when they buy Rolling Rock and other breweries. And then there's more strategic. You know, they realize, you know what, we need to do this at a, a small level and then grow. We're not going to go in with some big purchase. It's frustrating to break into the United States. It's frustrating to establish your brand across Canada in this business. Your book documents efforts in the 1970s and 1980s to diversify. It seems as though Labatt's can't make enough money simply brewing uh, beer. It has to do different things. Uh, How does it diversify? And was that experiment successful? I'm glad you followed that up that way. Because, you know, I would make the case that what there's a kind of Canadian corporate condition during the 1970s um, that we might call an inferiority complex. You know, our best corporate managers believe that we can't do something as well as the United States do it. We're always looking south from the border for uh, leads, uh, for hints on how to do things. So this Canadian corporate condition expresses itself at Labatt by um, them deciding we're not going to be a player in world markets. What we're going to do is con- concentrate on the Canadian economy and uh, produce goods for it. So they become a large fish in a very small pond. And you're absolutely right. They diversify into all kinds of unrelated industries. Laura Secord, which was a bust. Uh, they get into uh, the TSN, which is has some success, but nevertheless, you know, it gets their mind off of what they should be doing. The Discovery Channel is another one. They start promoting the rock concerts of David Bowie, the Rolling Stones, and Pink Floyd through one of their subsidiaries. So they're into so many different things at once. They get into dairy, they get into Everfresh Foods, they get into flour, they get into pastas. They're in everything. They literally spend billions of dollars during the 1970s and the 1980s, billions of dollars on 30 different companies, 30 different subsidiaries. Now, here's the thing. The beer money is pouring in, Patrice, and so they know they have that. And it creates a kind of frat boy attitude at the corporation. No one's really asking the important questions. There is no accountability at the firm. And so my point is, you have this stream of money. You should have been doing what you do best, which is to make a world-class beer. You know, you could say what you want about Blue and 50, but compared to the other macro brews, they're just as good. Well, you're making a very important point here because the 1980s really is a turning point in beer making history uh, as as Canadians and Americans. uh, And I presume it's mostly driven by the boomers, Canadian and American boomers suddenly declare independence that they will no longer drink the product of the big firms and suddenly decide that they will create a new market for fresh new beers with fresh new tastes. And that adds to the competition for Labatt and all the Canadian breweries, doesn't it? Yeah, you're so right. And the big point here is the Labatt misses this. You know, It's called the microbrewery revolution for a reason. What are they rebelling against? They're rebelling against the big three and the homogenization of taste and the fact that the big brewers like Labatt are spending more and more of their money on advertisements and less and less on the ingredients in the bottle. And so, you know, by the late 1970s, early 1980s, there's people around like Frank Appleton who are saying in the press, the Canadian press, we can do it better ourselves at home. Labatt at the time just ignores this thing. And the first microbreweries, the first one is the Horseshoe Bay Brewery, which appears on our West Coast in 1982. And thereafter, it takes off. Today, we have 1,123 brewers in Canada. We'll come to that in a second. <laughs> the Amer- the Labatt's was never really able to break into the American market, but the American market broke into Labatt's, didn't it? Uh, Labatt's yes. is no longer a Canadian company. What happened? 
first of all, there's a globalization of the industry. So what, what happened? They made so many missteps in the 1970s. Diversification was one, missing the uh, microbrewery revolution was another. They made a number of late plays to try and break into foreign markets, but by that time, they were not only not a leader, they weren't even a fast follower. And so most of the attractive buys in the international field were gone. They finally make a play uh, in 1994 to try and break into Mexico. And bad luck really gets them this time, Patrice, because uh, when they buy up the makers of Dos Equis and Sol uh, and Tecate, F-E-M-S-A, Creveza, which is a, one of two breweries in Mexico, they make a play for it, buying up 20% of that company. It costs them three quarters of a billion dollars. But literally overnight, there's a currency crisis. And this is because of uh, various attempted assassinations. There's guerrilla warfare in the South. Investors, therefore, pull their money out of the market. The value of the peso is cut in half. Collapses, yes. Exactly. And so Labatt watches its book value be cut in half. At this point, you know, a number of shareholders are saying, well, we got to change directions and maybe we should sell out. And who comes along in 1995? Interbrew, the Belgian brewer that can trace its history all the way back to 1366. Patrice, it's no bigger than Labatt's. It is no bigger than Labatt's. Its products aren't better than Labatt's, but they had done things smartly. They had not diversified. They had looked abroad for opportunities to growth. They knew their core competency and they exploited it the world over. And this is the sad thing about it. If we had just done it slightly differently, I might be you know, doing this Zoom call with you from Portugal and drinking a Labatt's blue. Right? <laughs> Well, listen, so you're raising an important question in my mind. What does the experience of Labatt tell you about Canadian business history? Um, What lessons can we we draw from the Labatt experience in terms of Canadian business history writ large? Yeah, I think that what it teaches us is that, first of all, we have to be confident and look and be worldly, look beyond our national boundaries. We have to be fast on our feet. We have to be aggressive. These are the sort of things when we navel gaze, as Labatt's did during the 1970s and 1980s, we miss opportunities for growth abroad. And that in an increasingly globalized environment, you know, is essential. We do certain things well, Patrice. We are very good at certain things and we should exploit our natural advantages the world over. So I think that's the lesson. But Labatt tells us, the experience of Labatt tells us that if you're going to go with diversification, it's got to be done smartly. And you cannot lose sight of what actually makes you a thriving company to start with. Brewing is an important craft. Brewing uh, made Labatt's very successful. Um, when you don't have the management skills necessary to diversify, maybe you should not be diversifying in industries that you don't belong to. This is, an indus- this is something that happened... Uh, to many uh, Canadian companies, didn't it? Uh, and we see this in the, in, in the bust of the 1990s and uh, at the turn of the century. Labatt's biggest mistake then was not sticking to its knitting and, and, and diversifying yes. in areas where it should not have. It's no longer a family business at that point. It's, it has not been a family business for a long time. The Labatt's are usually are, are eventually phased out. When are the Labatt family phased out? In the 40s, 50s? The company goes uh, um, public initially. Um, so they, it becomes a public company because they need the capital to exploit their advantages across the nation. So after the Second War, 1945, they go public. Then it becomes a national brewer and we see the emergence of 
national brands like Blackboard. Um, to answer your question, they slowly sell off their shares. They get watered down to the point where they no longer have anywhere close to a controlling interest by the 1970s. The last push comes in the 1960s when there's an attempt by Slits to uh, buy out the company. And the driving force behind that was actually Jack Labatt, uh, who was on the board. Uh, Labatt's at the time, and he kind of like romanticized about the old glory days when the Labatt family controlled things, and so he was hoping this would restore some sort of natural order to the firm. I mean, it is a unique business in that sense uh, that that family names stay associated with the actual product. Labatt's, Molson's, Keats. I mean, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, and Patricia, you know, uh, Teresa De Silva Lopez, who's a colleague uh, working over in England who watched, wrote a wonderful book called Global Brands, says that your, makes your exact point. You know, it, there's something about the alcoholic beverage industry and family ownership. And she puts it down to a kind of sense of pride in it. And these brands have long life cycles as a result. And she actually makes the case that, you know, if you look at the big brewers, they're often family old and controlled. Interbrew was certainly that, right? Because there's a kind of, what should we call it? Uh, egotism that goes along with owning uh, distilleries and breweries and wineries. Well, it's a product that makes people happy. So you want to be associated with it, perhaps. <laughs> right, right. Um, I want to finish up, Matthew, with um, the quintessential Champlain Society question, which is, what were your sources for this book? So down at the University of Western Ontario, the Labatt's paper, they got released into the public domain uh, in 2011, I believe is the year. And uh, Patricia, they're five football fields of documentation. If you put the boxes end, 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 you know, five football fields. The beautiful thing is there's wonderful archivists down there because this was a fresh collection. You know, when I heard that it was released, I got my on a bus and went down there and, you know, uh, talked to the archivist and they basically said, you know, we're working with files that we don't know a lot about, but they helped me out every step of the way. And they often knew more clearly what I was looking for than I did. And so without them, I would have been lost, but it is a wonderful collection. I only scratched the surface, uh, you know. This- well, that's my second question. So you're saying that the, the, the family papers or the industry or the corporation, the corporate papers are in at the University of Western Ontario? The corporate papers. Do you papers. think that there's... There's material there for other studies of Labatt's? I think there's not only enough material to do uh, other studies of Labatt, but all their subsidiaries, Patrice. You know, think of it. Like, uh, someone should be doing a master's thesis or a PhD thesis on the Toronto Blue Jays. There's wonderful uh, documentation down there on that. Never mind Laura Secord and all these subsidiaries in that, TSN. That's important to know. So you may be attracting a lot more students as a result of this. I hope so. Are, are you doing more work on Labatt's? Are you going to be doing more work on this topic? No, I, that is it for me. I'm moving on. I don't know what, to what, Patrice. <laughs> All right. But that's the world that we live in, isn't it? <laughs> Let me ask you then. My last question is this. Uh, so what are you drinking these days? Oh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> so there's a wonderful, um, and I don't have a financial interest in this company, uh, <laughs> oh, but there's a wonderful, I don't know if you ever get down to St. Catharines. Not often enough, I have to say, but I do go down and I've got a, I've got a recommendation of my own in that regard. Go ahead. So there's on Main Street, there's something called the Merchant's Ale House. And they brew their own beer and their blueberry wheat. My son is down there now playing lacrosse for Brock and while he's going to teacher's college. And every time he comes back, I said, listen, you're not coming home without six pack of those tall boys of uh, blueberry wheat. This is a wheat with. OK, I'm sorry. This is a blueberry beer. A blueberry wheat beer. It's sensational. What are you drinking? Well, my favorite these days is called the Beer 101 Strong, and it's done not far away from what you're talking about, the Niagara College Teaching Brewery. And this is a Scotch ale. I'm particularly fond of of dark ales and strong ales and stouts. And uh, so I I, I recommend the Beer 101 Strong to our listeners. And, uh, of course, I have to say something about 
Quebec breweries because this is something that has uh, really emerged phenomenally over the last 35, 40 years. And there's a wonderful uh, beer that I love to drink, and it's called the Tante Tricotante by the Microbrasserie du Lac Saint-Jean. And I love the name and I love the beer. It's also, it's a triple, it's a triple Belgian-style beer. The Tante Tricotante, which means the knitting ant. Stick to your knitting. Matthew Bellamy's message is, if you do good beer, stick to your knitting. And this is the beer called the Tante Tricotante. For the listeners who are curious about this, there is a fantastic website put together by the Canadian Brewery Awards. So if you want to know what's, what's winning prizes and what's original, and the great Canadian craft of, of, of brewing, uh, I, I strongly recommend the Canadian Brewery Awards website. Thank you, Matthew, for sharing your ideas and your insights on the evolution of Labatt's with us. I can't thank you enough. This was amazing. Amazing. Thank you. That was Matthew Bellamy, Associate Professor of History at Carleton University. His book is Brewed in the North, A History of Labatt's. It's published by McGill-Queens University Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca, where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. And if you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded on August 12, 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, only because of the genius of our producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.